Hello, my friends. My name is Chris K, and I'm the host of Burner Phone Podcast, an educational series about the world of crime from the people that lived it. In this episode, I'll be talking to... Hi, I'm Larry Levine. I'm a former 10-year federal inmate and was formerly an efficiency expert for organized crime. Hey, man, how you doing? Oh, I'm up to no good. How are you? I'm doing wonderful, man. The weather's clearing up over here in Atlanta. Well, it's a little cold and breezy in L.A., but you know what? It'll warm up later. Nice. So, um, yeah, man, where were you Where were you born? Where was I born? I was born on Earth. No, I was born in Los <laughs> Angeles back in 61. Gotcha. What was uh, life like growing up for you, man? I grew up in L.A. in the 1960s, San Fernando Valley. Well, I was born in 61, so I really grew up in the 60s and 70s, graduated from high school in 79, Canoga Park High School out here in San Fernando Valley. And, I mean, it was all right. The valley wasn't the way it is today. It was full of people that didn't have the millions and millions of assholes that it has now. All you're doing now is driving between red lights. You know, I was involved in crime and graft probably from the time I was, I want to say, the fifth grade. I came across a set of master keys to an elementary school. God, this had to have been back like in 1972, 72-73. And I kept these keys for years, and I would open gates and let myself into different classrooms. Me and my friends would go to school on the weekend and kind of rifle through stuff, take what we wanted. We didn't really vandalize. We were just looking for stuff for our own personal use. And turns out this same set of master keys also worked when I was in junior high school because it was LA Unified School District. I imagine by now they've changed all these and I couldn't even tell you where these keys are. We're talking a long time ago. But, uh, I mean, when I was in junior high school, I was involved in illicit activities. Mm -hmm. When I was in high school, well, I was helping people get counterfeit report cards made to change their grades, hall passes. We were creating notes for kids that wanted to cut school for their parents to allow them to get out. I was always looking for opportunity. And I guess that was uh, my earliest enterprise. Well, I was booking horses, too, in high school. It's kind of like okay. a bookie of sorts. I was loaning money to people and, you know, just doing what I had to do to survive. And did I really need the money? No. didn't make a difference. I think I enjoyed it. You know, I had... Connections everywhere. What did your parents do for a living? My dad owned uh, real estate throughout L.A., and my mom stayed home and complained. <laughs> so later, when, when me and my sister were in uh, middle school, or junior high school back then, she worked retail. But uh, stable house, uh, you know, two kids, boy and a girl. Swimming pool, a dog, two dogs. You know, middle class family growing up in the suburbs. How did you 
growing up, how did you see yourself as a as a young man? Never really reflected on that. How I saw myself. Uh, elaborate. Well, I mean, did you were you like a tough guy growing up? Were you uh, were you a loner type? Well, were you like, what what type of person would, would were you back then? Well, I mean, we were breaking into pay phones. We weren't going into stores shoplifting, but we would steal a pay phone off the wall, and we would bust into it. We would take back when they had news racks out on the street. We were busting into those to get change. We were uh, going to laundromats, busting into those to get money. So I guess we were doing some vandalism, if you will. Mm-hmm. But uh, I was, you know, if I did some of the shit today that I did back then, they would probably lock me up for, like, urban terrorism, where me and my friends were blowing people's mailboxes up. Off. You know, I ha- I didn't even remember this till you asked me. We were ordering taxi cabs for people in the middle of the night, to, all night long, to wake them up because so they couldn't sleep. Matter of fact, one time we told we we we'd be sitting out on the street smoking weed, you know, be like two o'clock in the morning. We'd be parked in my friend's grandmother's car. We'd be out on the street getting high. And we'd have called the taxi. We'd park like across the street and down a bit. We'd see the taxi show up to this guy's house and like banging on the door. And we're listening. We had communications equipment. So we were able to monitor the taxi frequencies. The taxi drivers always said we got jacked, which means it wasn't a real run. But, you know, it's waking those other people up. It's disturbing the fuck out of them. And we told this one uh, taxi dispatcher, Yes, my mother needs to go to the airport, and she's kind of hard of hearing. So can you have the uh, taxi driver pound rather loudly on the door? Well, this guy pounded on that fucking door so hard, he broke the fucking glass. It was hilarious. (laughs) Imagine that. Middle of the night. Boom, 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 boom. You were were a prankster. You were a prankster. Ah, yes. We were breaking into the telephone company, Pacific Telephone. It's funny because I own Pacific Telephone now. Yeah. Different company, but same name. They forgot to re-trademark it when it changed hands, and I grabbed it. Were you guys getting and we free were, phone calls on, on pay phones? Back then, oh, yeah. Well, we were stealing the phones and getting free. We were phone freaks, really. You know what a phone yeah. freak is? Oh, yeah. 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 We were blue boxing and black boxing and going to phone freak parties, you know, just having a good old time. Yeah, because phone calls were real expensive back then. Well, Yeah. Yeah, they were. Extremely were you, expensive. Growing up, who were your who were your heroes? Did you have any? Who did you look up to? I look up to. I didn't really look up to anybody. Not really. You know, all these kids. I, I want to be a fireman. I want to be a policeman. I want to be an airline pi- you know pilot. I wanted to be a pirate. I thought that'd be <laughs> pretty cool. Yeah. And I, I remember at my dad's house. Because we were on the CB radio. How old are you? I'm 30. 30? Shit, dude, I got kids older than you. So mm-hmm. you don't remember CB radio, do you? I remember it when I was young, real young. We used to, uh, I used to be in my grandpa's car, and I used to get on the CB radio and fuck with truckers going down the road. Shit. Well, I'm talking mid-70s, before you were born. That was like the height of the CB radio craze. And we would... Uh, We'd be on the CB radio, and we'd be somebody would hide. They called it a tea hunt. 
God, I haven't thought of that in years. A CBer would hide, and he'd key his mic with the radio playing, and people would be driving around trying to find him based on the signal. Yep. They called him the hidden T. <laughs> and yeah. I remember my my father was into amateur radio and shortwave radios, and we had big tall masts on the roof of the house. And I remember I got a pirate flag one day, and I put a pirate flag up on the roof, and I just thought it was the funniest thing. But I was flying the Jolly Roger, you know, and I'm in, like, high school. And then I cut school a lot. You know, I gave myself my own grades. I had a way to do this. So it didn't make a difference. Not really. Yeah. So so growing up and uh, kind of being the the, the neighborhood like anarchist, hoodlum. the hoodlum. Uh, yeah. You know what? I was neighborhood. Tell why everything spread out. Let's say... um. I operated over a several. I operated over a fifty square mile area. Okay. So everybody had, you know, in LA, you got to have a vehicle. Yeah. You got to have a way to get around. So what? How did you first get involved in? I would say like real crime, you know, and the stuff that they could put you away for for a couple years or more. Well, that was when I got out of the military. I mean, I went in the military and I was. Involved in military intelligence. Were you in the Army? Army? I was in the Air Force. Oh, okay. It was an inter-service agency, or of sorts. And I got kind of disillusioned, things that I saw. So I got out and took it commercial, became a private investigator. And it's when I became a PI that I started diverting more of my own work to criminal activities, if you will. Mm-hmm. And um, it became like, an, you know, they would bring crime to me, our friends on the East Coast. And I would take that crime and I would look at it three-dimensionally and I would make crime better, more bang for the buck. And I eventually got caught, or I got charged, convicted, call it what it is, with narcotics trafficking, securities fraud, racketeering, obstruction of justice, and machine guns. Yeah, I'll get to I, that. Uh, Larry, how how did you get introduced to these guys on the East Coast, and who, who were they? I'll only go so far as to saying who they were, but it's names you've seen in the news. I uh, was contacted back when I was operating my private... I was contacted back when I was running my private investigation agency. I was running an investigation agency called Dirt and Associates, D-I-R-T. Stood for Derogatory Information Retrieval Team. And we were able to pull records on all kinds of shit, you name it. I later switched the name of the company to Drastic Measures. Because we were doing all kinds of shit. We were cutting corners. I mean, if, like I said, if I did the shit today I did back then, they'd fucking lock me up, they'd weld the cell door shut, and I'd never get out. But I got introduced to some people that needed my services, um, needed my expertise, if you will. And that was kind of like my, my contact into the world of organized crime. Were these, and, uh, what kind of mobsters were they? Were they Russians? Were they Italian? No, they were, were they Italian businessmen. Italians? I don't really want to say they were mobsters, because that's, that's rude. You know, everyone knows there's no such thing as the mafia. That's all bullshit. That's for TV. 
but I was working in conjunction with some East Coast Italian businessmen, independent mm-hmm. businessmen, and I was an independent business person in Los Angeles, and I was helping them with uh, some of their business issues. They would come to me with crime, and I would make it better, much better. When you when you say make it better, what type of crime were they bringing to you, and, and how were you making Financial it better? Financial crimes, oh, counterfeiting, identity theft, credit cards. We were manufacturing counterfeit driver's licenses, birth certificates, social security cards, food stamps. Travelers' checks, money orders, U.S. currency, twenty fifties and hundreds. You kind of get what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And uh, so you were you were making these products for them, and they were in turn selling them on the East Coast, or what? What, what were they? Oh no, what they were doing? Didn't don't ask, don't tell. Gotcha. Didn't want to know. Yeah. You know, they would bring a project to me. I would look at the project, make it better. They wanted to facilitate a crime. I mean, these people are expert criminals. But sometimes they needed, uh, as one of them said, we'll, we'll bring this Jew in. He's a smart Jew. He knows what he's doing. Let's let's pick his brain and see if he has any ideas. It's kind of like what they did. They would pick my brain. I would look at shit and determine whether or not what they wanted to do was feasible. And if anything needed to be, you know, be changed. What years was this during this time? What years were these? Let's say it was late 80s through the 90s, late 90s, until I went to prison. And this East Coast organized crime family, or these or these business guys, where are they now? Are they are they still alive? Some are of they... them are alive, some of them are dead, and some of them are in prison. Do you still keep in contact with any of them? Not really. You know, I do prison consulting now. Federal criminal litigation. I still get to work with criminals. It's all clean money. I have people call me all the time about crimes that they're committing. And I listen to them and I hear them out. And then I say, well, you know, I'm not really involved in that anymore. But uh, I wish you well in your endeavors. So do me a favor. Don't call me again. Because my phone is being monitored by the FBI and Homeland Security. which kind of freaks people out. Yeah. Now I don't I don't know if it is. It's the phone we're on right now, or I'm calling into your network on. Or you might want to cut that out. I don't know. They may want to think I'm there in your studio. Well, but I, I tell it could be. You never know. Well, but then I tell them. But then again, everybody's phone is monitored. See, sure. the the feds have a system. It used to be called Echelon. There's better stuff now, where they will take a conversation. And they're continually monitoring the phone lines. And they will monitor it for keywords like terrorism, espionage, explosion. See, I just I just triggered it right now. And they'll put a value on that call. And somebody will listen to this call somewhere down the road. And they'll go, oh, this is Levine. He's just getting interviewed again. Cause I always do that. But they'll put a value on the call. The computer will actually do it. It'll use an analyzer, and it will determine if there's enough keywords have been used to trigger monitoring on the call. So, essentially, it's like it's on autopilot. NSA and Homeland Security use that shit a lot. So, I tell them, you know, don't call me. 
It's not a good idea. I don't want to know. Yeah, so what what about you do you think allowed you to succeed in this world that you were that you were operating in? What about me? What about your personality, you know? Because I'm quick. I can figure shit out quick. I have a good understanding of how shit works, how shit doesn't work. You know, a lot of people, they don't have that understanding. I I attribute some of it to my military background where I could take a situation, I can rapidly analyze it, do what I like to call a quick feasibility study, like is this possible, is this not possible? A lot of people, they can't do it. They just don't have the ability where uh, I do. And my bullshit, my bullshit detectors on high. Yeah, so you would, would would you say you're good at reading people? I'm good at profiling people. I get people lying to me on a daily basis. I do all the time. People are lying to me, and I just smile. I know they're lying. I know they're full of shit, but I don't say anything. I I don't become confrontational. I give them the illusion that they're pulling one over on me. And then I can divert the conversation into some relevant areas and use that really to find out what it is I need to know. So you were were arrested uh, for conspiracy. Uh, for, for what, narcotics trafficking, among, uh, among other secu- things, securities fraud, racketeering, automatic weapons. What can you can you talk about the securities fraud racket? What 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 was that exactly? What happened with that? It was it was securities fraud, narcotics trafficking, racketeering, obstruction of justice, and machine guns. That was can what you, I was under investigation for. Can you talk about? the securities fraud aspect? What were you doing? Well, we were creating counterfeit securities. Money is considered securities. American Express Traveler's Checks are con- are considered securities. Anything of a financial nature is considered securities. Stock certificates are securities. You know, I had a guy that we brought this guy in from Hawaii. I turned out to be a fucking rat down the road, but he was pretty smart. And we were counterfeiting at the time American Express Traveler's Checks. And I don't even know if they have these anymore. Do they still have those? I have no clue. You don't see one. Do you know what a Traveler's Check is? You know, I, I don't. <laughs> I don't. I, I've, I've heard of them, but I've never... It's like never you go one. to the bank, you would buy them, like the American Express Company that does the American Express card would sell them. Okay. And back then, you know, people didn't have debit cards the way they have today. and You had to write a check. And let's say you were traveling and you didn't want to carry a bunch of cash. It's lost, it's stolen. You'd buy these traveler's checks like at the bank. And they were like prepaid checks. That's exactly what they were. And you could go and use them wherever, whenever. And we were counterfeiting those, and people would call to to verify these. And the guy that we brought in from Hawaii 
was so good that he had the logarithmic code. And you were able to contact American Express and they would verify that the checks were good. And I just thought that was the funniest thing. That's interesting. Yeah. With the with the narcotics trafficking, um, how were you involved in that? What were you guys moving? Oh, cocaine, heroin, methamphetamine, marijuana. On what level? What type of quantity are we talking? Well, I don't know. The quantity you put in a suitcase? I was more of a... You know, I almost put my fist in somebody's grill not too long ago. The stupid cocksucker called me a drug dealer. And I got really, really angry. And I said, listen here, you stupid motherfucker. I was never a drug dealer. You think you would find me out on the street selling drugs? I was a narcotics trafficker. You know what the difference is? Oh, yeah. I was trafficking narcotics. I was middlemanning. I was like the middleman, where I was facilitating dealers. Well, eh, dealer. I was facilitating with manufacturers to distributors. And we just moved everything. You know, and I ended up getting set up guy that was a I was doing some insurance fraud with he was in some trouble I didn't know it he set me up to sell directly to the DEA and I ended up selling the DEA an ounce an ounce a pound then two pounds of methamphetamine I see you know and they only busted me because they wanted me to get them 12 kilos and I couldn't do it I told them I said look This isn't my regular job. I said, I'll try to help you out. And the guy that set me up, Gary Robert Perro from upstate New York, his birthday was uh, February 5th, 1952. Not that I would remember, of course. And he was in trouble on his own and some other activities. And... He told me his fiance had cancer, which I knew she did, and he needed money for her treatment. And if I could find somebody that had drugs, because he had a buyer, that he would get paid a large commission. And I guess I bit, because I really wasn't moving drugs before that. You know, drugs weren't my thing. I smoked weed, sure. Did a little bit of coke, but back then everybody did. And had I planned it out better, I probably wouldn't have gotten caught. But I got sloppy. I guess I trusted the guy, even though he was a criminal. And I thought, well, I'll do this deal for you. Well, is what it is. I ended up getting popped. I was coming outside an El Torito restaurant. They have El Torito. Where are you located? Atlanta. Atlanta. All right. They got El Toritos out there? No, I've never heard of them. They're a Mexican chain. Maybe it's West Coast. Coming outside an El Torito restaurant in Northridge, California. You ever heard of Northridge? Oh, yeah. All right, so we're on common ground. All right, so I'm coming outside an El Torito restaurant in Northridge, California. 
supposed to meet this son of a bitch, discuss a drug deal, and uh, calls me on my cell phone. I took my uh, tequila, had a shot there, had a bar, chugged it down, went out in the parking lot looking for this bastard. I see him way at the other end of the parking lot waving his hand. I go, there he is. All of a sudden, all these federal agents jump out of nowhere. Must have been like a hundred of them. They've got like automatic weapons and pistols and shotguns and all this shit. They're yelling, put your hands in the air. Put your hands in the air. And I'm like looking at them. And I'm thinking, wow, something's happening here, you know? Well, I didn't know it was me that was happening. So I like said, hey, are you talking? I just casually like, are you talking to me? And they're like, put your hands in the air. I go, all right, well, lower your weapons. I'm not going to hurt you. I think I fucked with their egos over that, you know? So so no drugs, ever, when, you were, when you were set up on the trafficking charge, no drugs ever changed hands? It was just a conspiracy? Well, yeah, I had sold an ounce, an ounce, a pound, and two oh, okay. pounds. Okay. But when I was arrested, see, nobody knew about, really, about conspiracy laws back then. I didn't even know when I was being popped in the parking lot that uh, I had been set up. had no idea. I thought maybe he was being busted, too. I didn't find out until later, until I started getting discovery, legal paperwork, when they were mentioning events and days and times. And I put it all together when it said CS, confidential source. I'm like, oh, fuck, well, he's the fucking rat here. But, uh, you know, they busted me. I had no drugs on me. I had no weapons on me. I didn't have anything that I considered to be uh, incriminating on me. But I didn't know that all those other deals that I had been involved in were controlled buys. I didn't know that he set me up to the Secret Service with the counterfeit money and the traveler's checks. I didn't know that he set me up with, uh, with uh, God, who was it, U.S. Customs for the counterfeit social security cards and birth certificates because we were we were getting people into the into the country had no idea none whatsoever so you were also selling him um the counterfeit the counterfeit um paperwork as well not only the not only the dope well the prosecutor called me the supermarket of crime yeah He said I had my hand involved in everything illegal in Los Angeles, which we proved it wasn't true. I mean, they said I was killing people for the mafia, throwing bodies in trash dumpsters and throwing them into the ocean, you know. Yeah. What what about the violence uh, during that time? Um, I mean, how common was it when you were operating back then? I mean, shit happened, but it wasn't, how can I put this? It was more directed violence. It wasn't random violence. People were more disciplined. At least the people I was involved with. Nobody was going out randomly robbing people. Nobody was going out randomly killing people. It was more financial where people owed people money. 
you know. Someone may have to go out and break somebody's finger, break somebody's arm, beat them up, something. Shake them down for what they owed. Yeah. You know, I, I consider I consider that more of a civil matter, really. Even though it wasn't, there was some violence there. But if you borrow money from somebody, you borrow, I don't know, let's use round numbers, $100. You borrow $100 and you know the terms of the of the deal that you've got two weeks to pay it back, but you've got to pay back $150. Yeah, that is a real high interest rate, isn't it? Oh, yeah. But you made the deal, didn't you? So if you made the deal, keep the deal. Don't go start running and crying later. You know, somebody gives you the money for the deal, it's, it is what it is. And that's one thing I can't stand, people that fucking welch. They they back out on these fucking deals. Nobody twisted their arm to to accept the money at all. They needed it. Here you go. This is the terms and conditions. So that's really a lot of the violence that I saw with people who weren't following through on things. I mean, there were other events and activities going on, but I really I didn't get involved in that. What's yeah. my thing? Why should I? Yeah, with the violence, would you usually kind of have someone under you handle it, or did you ever have to handle it yourself? Or I would make a phone call. It's not something I elected to do. Yeah. You know, there's, there's. It's like I was a creative thinker. I was a specialist. I wasn't really in what you would call enforcement. I didn't like to get my hands dirty. Right. I like to take I like to take a crime back then. And I would ask whoever my client was, Well, what is it you're looking for? I always I ask customers that now, clients that now. What is it you're looking for? What is the end result that you want? And if I know what your end result is and what it is you want, then I can direct what we're doing to ensure that's going to happen. But people get wishy-washy. Well, I don't know. I mean, what the fuck you mean you don't know? You're coming to me with an issue. There's something that you're trying to accomplish. What are we trying to accomplish? I'll figure out how to do it the most efficient way. It's kind of like what I was doing for the mob, more bang for the buck. Let's not emphasize on shit that's not going to work. Let's not emphasize on shit that's not going to make us money. Let's go after things that can really, really be done. I can't stand wishy-washy fucking people. You know, it's not like we're talking about invading the uh, Asian landmass or something. So before you were busted, um, at the height of your activities, how were you living? Like, how much money were you making back then? Several thousand dollars a month, dirty money. Yeah. We're, We're talking, though, back in 1980s, 1990s. 
So we're talking a long, long time ago. All my money is clean now. Right. We're doing legitimate business. But, I mean, it was the money just kept on, you know, coming in. There was never any shortage of money and crime. Yeah. So when you were finally arrested, what year was this? 1998. 98. And so from how many years were you operating till you were busted? Mm. About 10. 10 years. I got two 10-year sentences and a five-year sentence. all ran concurrent. And so you tell me, how much time did I really get? I got 25 years, but they ran it yeah. concurrent, so it was only really 10. Gotcha, gotcha. And when you were arrested initially, what kind of pressure did they did the feds put on you? Like, what kind of information were they trying to get out of you? Well, they wanted to know who my contacts were, how many times I had done this. They would show me pictures, and, you know, it's like, I didn't lie, because then they get you for obstruction of justice. They get you for perjury. But there's a difference between what if you just really don't know? It's like they would, uh, I was on the witness stand. I was testifying at my sentencing. They wanted to give me more time, and we were trying to get less time. It's called upward departures or downward departures. And, you know, the prosecutor, we know that da-da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da-da. Let me think. Was that? Okay, this is when I was being interviewed. And, you know, we know this and we know that. And I'm there, well, that's great. Well, if you know this, why are you asking me if you already know this? Which kind of, like, pissed them off. And then I'm on the witness stand testifying at my sentencing, trying to get downward departure. And they're trying to give me what's called an upward departure. And I remember the prosecutor saying, like, to me, where were you on da-da-da-da-da? It's like throwing some date, date and time to me. And I'm listening to this silly son of a bitch say this. And I uh, kind of like looked over at the judge because I'm up on the witness stand. The judge is next to me, and I said, "Your Honor, can I ask a question?" He goes, "Well, that's highly irregular that the defendant's going to ask a question." The prosecutor, "No, no, that's okay. Go ahead." I said, "Sir, you're asking me about something that happened a long time ago." I said. I don't know. I don't remember. Where were you on that day and time? Do you remember? I said, what do you think I did every time I committed a crime that I wrote it down and kept a diary? I said, I have no idea where I was on that day and time. And like all the people in the audience or well, whatever you call the people in the courtroom, like laughed at the prosecutor. They're like shaking their heads because, you know, how do people remember? If I was to ask you, Let's just pick an obscure date. Let's go back two years. Are you going to remember, unless it maybe was your birthday? Where I were you? I on don't a- remember. I don't remember. That's that's one of the. Uh, I've been told 
by a lawyer or two that that is the go-to answer. I don't remember. It's it's a safe answer. Well, when you're on the witness stand, I tell people, let's not step on your dick here. You're only going to answer the question in one of a few ways. Yes, no, I don't know, and I don't remember. Don't start giving storybook answers. You know what a storybook answer is? Oh, yeah. You're going into dialogue, which they're going to use down the road to fuck you. They're going to trip your ass up. And that's something you don't want. So when you were locked up, or I'm sorry, when you when you were arrested, was was anyone related to your dealings arrested as well? Any of the guys on the East Coast? Did they did they fall too? Yeah, but they suffered other shit because I didn't give anybody up. You know, when I was being interviewed by the uh, prosecutor, he said, "Mr. Levine." I looked around the room like, "Who's Mr. Levine?" Didn't give him anything. That's what why I got obstructed. Those... Sorry, forgot you. What were those guys arrested for? Ah, conspiracy. That's the catch-all. Can you describe going to prison for the first time? I found it very, very relaxing. I found it to be a stress-free environment. I found it gave me an opportunity to kind of get an idea where I wanted to move on in my life. Yeah, there was violence, people getting stabbed, people getting killed. I mean, it happens. Shit happens out on the street, too. I was in 11 different prisons over a 10-year sentence. I was when in you highs, went, mediums, lows, when you, minimums. When you got in there, how were you received amongst the general population? I, well, you know, I was used to dealing with people out on the street to begin with. So, it's like... And I had been in the military for years, so going to prison for me was no big deal. People come and go in prison every day. New people come in, other people get released. So there's a constant flux of people. But I didn't have any problems. I didn't have any issues with anybody. I never got into a fight once and the whole time I was in there. Did you, I did, did, you align yourself? did you align yourself with anyone while you got, when you got in there? No, I did not. Just stuck to yourself? I went into the law library. I started helping inmates with legal work. started familiarizing myself with the laws. People started coming to me for legal help. People that wanted to get out early, more halfway house, job changes, medical care. You know, they were wrongly convicted. No, not wrongly convicted. They were wrongly sentenced. There's a difference. And... I'm sorry, what were all the prisons that you were in? I was in MDCLA. I was in San Bernardino County Jail. I was in California City Correctional Center. I was in uh, FCI Phoenix. I was in FCI Safford. I was in, let me think, I'm running this through my head. I was in uh, Lompoc, it's all federal. I was in uh, Nellis in Las Vegas at the prison there. I was in the Lubbock, Texas County Jail. I was at Latuna in El Paso, Texas. I was at 
Oklahoma City, and I was at Taft, California. And can you so describe can... the prison politics within those institutions? I well, mean, it depends. The politics at a at a camp, a minimum security camp, is much different than it is at a higher security institution. Where at a camp, you could sit at a table like whites will sit with Hispanics and blacks and eat. You could share food with them. You could accept something from them. You get into a higher level institution, well, you know, you're not going to be doing that. That's a bad idea. That can get you into a wreck and get you into serious trouble. So you kind of had to run with your own people, if you know what I mean. That if the shit jumped off, you were expected to back them up because if something happened to you, they would be there to back you up. Where I didn't have that issue because I work in the law library helping anybody of any race. So when the institution was going to jump off into a riot and people weren't locking down and the cops are shitting their pants, I'm walking the yard just casually and freely. You know, and sides are squaring up and nobody's bothering me. It's like I had diplomatic immunity, you know? Yeah, yeah. Because people knew that I was doing legal work for everybody and I put people on notice saying, you know, these aren't my issues. These aren't my problems. These are your guys' problems and issues. So if you want to kill each other, that's wonderful. I wish you well. Go ahead and kill as many of you as you can. But, you know, this has nothing to do with me. Nothing at all. Yeah. They respected that. Staff didn't like it because it gave me an air of of power that I was able to move freely throughout an institution that was going to jump off. You know, and they're all huddled up in their riot gear, you know. And when inmates had issues during normal times, you call a prison normal, they would come to me for help, come to me with their issues and problems. Staff didn't like that. It gave me like an independent power base outside of the normal prison chain of command. And this is why they moved me around to so many institutions. I wasn't a disciplinary problem. I was more of a management issue. Staff wanted to get rid of me. When they closed the prison in Nevada and moved us to Texas, about 300 of us, I filed a class action habeas corpus lawsuit against the Justice Department. A unit manager in Texas told us that we were stuck there and that there was nothing that we could do about it. See, because the Justice Department took us outside our custody and security level, sent us more than 500 miles from our home of record. They violated their own policy. And they could have done it if they had filed the right documents and gotten the right waivers. It's called management variables, but they didn't. And I caught them. And I filed this class action habeas on behalf of everybody. And I caused them to move hundreds of inmates all over the country. So I didn't really make any brownie points there. Yeah. And it got to the point that they actually tried to release me six months early just to get rid of me. And I told them, I'm not leaving. I'm staying. And I'm going to fuck you people now right to the last minute. Matter of fact, I'm going to tell you 
step-by-step how I'm doing it. And there is absolutely nothing you can do to stop me, nothing at all. And I did. I fucked them right to the last minute. You know, when people get released, you know how they they give you money when you get out? They call it gate money. You ever heard that term before? Yeah. Well, you know, how much money do you think they gave me? I don't know. Gave me a dollar fifty. No, two dollars and fifty cents, or they tried to. Tried to give me two dollars and fifty cents. And I told them, I'm sorry, I'm not authorized to accept your money. Which really pissed them off. So doing doing legal work in there, were you making money off that? Yeah, I was making some money, but it's more like I was getting free commissary. You know, all that garbage you can buy on the inside. Yeah. Everybody has a racket in there. Some people do laundry and shine shoes, cut hair. They make arts and crafts items for people that they send out as gifts. Well, my work was all intellectual. It was done in the law library. It's more like a creative thinker, you know. And... um I didn't really have to go to the store much and buy much shit. People were just giving me stuff. What was some of the prized possessions in there, in, in the store? What, what was some of the best well, ones the you could store, buy? Well, I mean, the, the high-ticket items. You know, people were buying tennis shoes. People had, like, Sony Walkmans. Now they have MP3 players and little things that have games on them. Back then, they didn't have that. But it was all overpriced shit. You know, it's like, a pair of tennis shoes that you could buy on sale at Big Five. Do they have Big Five out there in Atlanta? No. Well, it's Big Five is a big. It's like a sporting goods store. So pick whatever big sporting goods store you you like or you've been into. And let's say a pair of tennis shoes is discontinued and it's marked down from a hundred dollars to like twenty five dollars. Well, the prison's selling you that same pair of shoes for seventy five bucks. Let's say a knockoff Sony Walkman, like a little Walkman radio, you pick up at Kmart or Target or Walmart for under $20. Let's say they're selling it to you for 50 bucks. So everything is marked up and overpriced. But that was like the big items. What other I things mean, did, most... you, did you do to keep yourself busy while you were in there besides legal work? Were you working out a lot? I wrote. I wrote, nah, I mean, I lost a bunch of weight. Everybody does. Did you? Watched a lot of movies, spent a lot of time reading, spent a lot of time listening to people commit their next crime or planning to commit their next crime. You know, they say that prison is like a college for criminals. You ever heard that? Yeah. People would bring their crimes to me, and I would look at it, and I'd break it down on paper, and I'd point out their flaws to them. And, you know, more bang for the buck, just like I was doing before I went in. Yeah, efficiency. And I would help people outline their next their next caper. <laughs> here's where your problem is. Here's your here's your weak areas. Here's your strong areas. Here's where you're probably going to get caught. And I spent a lot of time explaining people how not to get caught up in a conspiracy. You know, like what I do now, doing the prison consulting, it's not just people going into prison that I help out with. 
I'm with people sometimes from the day they get arrested or they get out on bond, explaining to them the indictment, the criminal complaint, their plea agreement, the sentencing memorandum. I'm not a lawyer. I can't give legal advice. But I could explain the law to you as it's written. This is what it says in the law. This is what you're being charged with. You know, this is the ramification of doing this, this, or this. That's not really legal advice. That's public information. So that's what I'm discussing with them. Then I tell them how this could apply to you. But any legal decisions they're going to make, that's between them and their lawyer. But I let them know if it was me and I had a, you know, a similar circumstance, I would certainly be looking at this. You need to bring this to your lawyer's attention. So it's almost like I'm doing an assessment of their case. I'll assess it. Tell them what I think the weak parts are and the strong parts are. And there's several people that I have either gotten out of prison early or got their sentences limited just recently as well. Find loopholes. I find errors lawyers make all the time. When I got arrested, I'm sitting in the back of this DEA van. They got the door open. I'm handcuffed. I'm watching all these fuckers run around. They all got their blue windbreakers on. It has the initials, you know, FBI, DEA, ATF. And they're calling each other by first name. And I'm looking at this. So I know your first name. I know what agency you're with, because it says so on your windbreaker. Over a period of weeks, I start getting discovery. So now I know your first name and your last name. I'm able to put a name with a face and an agency, because I have the discovery. So when I go and have this meeting with the prosecutor, they want to question me. I go into this room, this big conference table. There's all these agents from all these agencies sitting around the table. I recognize all of them. I remember their names. I know what agencies they're with. Prosecutor says to me, well, you already know who I am. So let me introduce you to the people that are here with us today. I says, I'll tell you what, why don't you let me do that? And I pointed to each person gave their first name and their last name and what agency they were with. And they just went ballistic. You know that? It's like, how could you possibly know that? That is impossible. And I said, now we know what I know. What do you know? And it's just like, drove them nuts. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I bet it did. Uh, they probably felt exposed. They did. See, the thing is that they couldn't read me. It's kind of like when I was getting ready to be sentenced. I'm up on the witness stand and I was stone-faced. I'm just looking straight ahead. I picked out this blonde chick, DEA agent, sitting in the audience, and I, I fucked her, made eye contact, just stared her down, which made her look away. It made her uncomfortable. The prosecutor didn't see my eyes go to the right, didn't go to the left. You know, it, he couldn't read me. 
because I'm staring straight ahead. I'm talking mon monotone. If you're ever in a situation and you're you're being cross-examined, you're on the witness stand or you're wherever, and they ask you, like, okay, is is your name John Smith? So let's say your name is John Smith. Yeah, you know the answer. You know who you are. But, okay, is your name John Smith? And you stop and you think about it. Yeah, my name is, yes, my name is John Smith. But you do that for every single answer you give. You you stop, you pause, you think about the question, you think about the answer. Do you know why you do this? They can't read you. They can't read you. So if they ask you a question and you need to lie, it gives you time to think of the question and think of an answer. They can't tell if you're lying or not because you're not out of character. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. You're answering consistently every single question the same way. Drives them nuts. Because it drives them nuts because they want to be able to read you. You served 10 years in prison. Uh, what was it like right. finally being released? What What was the first day like? Were you, re were you released initially uh, into a halfway house, or did you... Did you get fresh out? Well, when I first got released, they sent me on home confinement. I was in a halfway house, and I was going to work every day. started building the first website for American prison consultants. The Justice Department found out about it. I didn't know about Yahoo and Google and all this shit. They violated me, said I was running a business. I said, well, I didn't sell anybody and collect any money. I haven't spoken to anyone, but you told me to prepare for what I was going to do, and I got released. So I did. Well, they sent the U.S. Marshals out, picked me up at the halfway house, and took me back into custody. They wanted to take good time from me. Lady at the halfway, at the uh, federal detention center, said she looked over my site. She had no plans on me putting her on my site. She says, look, here's the deal. You don't have to work. We'll hold you here till the end of your time. We're not going to pull any good time. You can sleep all day long. Now, I had already spent a year at this place, or almost two years at the beginning of my sentence. So for me, it was like kind of coming home, you know. I said, done deal. Good enough. But when you first get out of custody, you go into like a 7-Eleven. You go hog wild. You go like, wow, I can buy anything here I want. Because you're not shopping off some little stupid commissary list, so it's kind of like you're you're overwhelmed. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's overwhelming, but you adapt. You get back in the groove of shit. And it's like uh, imagine not knowing about Yahoo and Google search engines that they're indexing your site, but you learn to adapt. You learn to adapt to the situation. And for me, like coming back to L.A., we were talking about all the traffic out here, beginning of the interview. It's, uh, it's a whole new world, was a whole new world. Traffic, I had grandchildren. Imagine you go into custody of father, you come out of grandfather. You want to tell me if that's not a mind fuck, some little kid calling you grandpa?
Yeah, that is a mindfuck. Can you talk about the business that you run now? What do you What do you do? Well, now I operate Wall Street prison consultants and American prison consultants. I do federal criminal litigation, prison coaching, prison consulting. When people call me, they're already fucked. They are. You know, I, people don't call me when things are going real good. I help people make the adjustment from the free world to prison, teach them what they need to know, give them survival skills, help people get out early, get into programs, get good jobs, point shit out where their lawyer may be full of shit. So I tell people, you're fucked. You are, but we're just going to unfuck things some. And my clients love me. You know, I've saved people countless years in custody by catching shit their lawyers did not catch getting people positioned so they can get into programs, take advantage of these programs to get out of custody early. This is kind of like what I do. And I can catch them either at the beginning of their case when they first got charged or indicted, or some people get a hold of me after they've been sentenced. And I'm there for them and their family. So when they get into custody... If a problem comes up, and it always does, because if the Bureau of Prisons followed their own policy, hell, I'd be out of a fucking job. So that's the one thing we can guarantee, that someone's going to violate their their uh, their rights. And that's where I come in, where they can bullshit you. They can't bullshit me. They can't at all. When I got out of custody, I was doing this shit, running my business. I had special permission from the Federal Probation Office to do it, because you're not supposed to deal with it felons and inmates and all this shit. And they don't let anybody else coming out do it. They wait for them to get off supervised release or they have to be on for a certain period of time. Well, I had special permission from the judges to specifically do what I do because they knew that I knew what I was doing. And everybody was on board with it. I had some probation people that tried to prevent me. And I came up with case law that said, no, I'm allowed to do it and here's why. They scratched their heads and found out, yeah, Levine is right. He knows what he's talking about. You know, I don't pull punches. Larry, I've seen you wear sunglasses on TV. Why is that? I wear sunglasses because it makes me look like an asshole, and it keeps people off balance. I just did a, a documentary called Sense of Justice for the BBC a couple weeks ago, and the producer wanted me to take off my glasses. And he asked me, he goes, well, why do you leave your glasses on? I said, it makes me look like an asshole. And he goes, well, what do you look like without your glasses? I said, well, I look like an asshole without glasses. Keeps people off balance, keep people off center. They don't know what you're thinking or where they're looking. You're looking, they can't read you. And I really, I don't have problems with people. People say I intimidate people. I'm just like the friendliest person in the world. It's like the way I'm talking to you. But everyone just seems to give me whatever I want, you know? It's like, here you go. Well, thanks. <laughs> I don't stress on shit. Not at all. Just don't worry about stuff. If it's going to happen, it's going to happen. We try to avoid it. Yeah, I, pre- I, life. I appreciate how you keep it real. I do like that. Well, I try to. I don't pretend to be something that I am not. I don't know the answer to something. I just tell you, fuck it. I don't know. I'll find the answer out. But I'm not going to lie. You want someone to lie to you? Call your lawyer. Your lawyer will fucking lie to you. No problem. He'll even charge you for it. Larry, thank you for talking with me today, man. Sure, dude. Just imagine the shit I didn't tell you. Oh, I can't. The shit I can. 
All right, dude. Well, anything I can do, just shout out to me, okay? All right, brother. See you. Take care.